Let's pray. Father God, as we come before your word this morning, strike us with clarity of thought, a desire to listen, desire to heed, and change our hearts, Lord. Allow our faith to grow um, ever more intimate with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The last two times we've been in this book of Exodus, we've had this unique reality of these people are experiencing God's abiding presence with them. In the heavenly host, we saw this uh, individual who will go before them and prepare a place for them, but also they have uh, followed the elements in order of worship, being called into worship by His Word, by uh, declaring a confession of faith, by, um, con- uh, in one sense, uh, being covered in the blood, uh, a symbol of many things, of a contract covenant, but also of, an, of a greater atonement to come. And then, um, as the congregation of the Lord was worshiping God in this moment, all of a sudden, 74 elders moved up the mountain last week as we considered this passage, and they got a foretaste, they got a glimpse of heaven. And now we reach a point where two of those 74 in Joshua and Moses are going to be able to come a little closer to the Lord. And as that happens, there is this unique tension. There's this unique dilemma. There's something that's squeaking over there, so I'm going to close this door. But as that happens, there's this unique tension that often is not picked up as we read through this passage, but surely exists in this ancient time of worship. We can surely say it did exist because it even existed in Jesus' day in the Gospels themselves. And it's this. For about 2,500 years or longer, depending on when you date the fall, God's abiding presence, God's living in communion with His people, being present with His people, has not been able to be found. God has, for certain, shown up at times. He has appeared at times. And yet, He doesn't have this kind of access point. And here, we we seem to find a a God who uh, has been found in one sense, but as we just heard the song, Go Down Moses, and it's referencing Moses going down the mountain, one of the, the real questions is, this mountain of God, this place of God, where we experience the presence of God, the reality of God, it's not in the promised land. It's in Arabia. It's it's roughly the same distance as Raleigh, North Carolina is from us today uh, for these original people. And so what do you do with a God who's going before us, who's preparing a place for us, and yet the, the one place we find Him is in this 
mountaintop in Arabia. And a lot of what this passage will reference and mention, a lot of what we'll find in both chapter 24 and 25 here, solves a dilemma that, again, as I mentioned in the Gospels, like for instance, John chapter 4 with the woman at the well that the ancient Israelite just felt or the ancient Samaritan felt. God, what, what mountain do I worship you at? Where do I go to worship you? And so we're going to start exploring that question today and, and what this outpost looks like. So here are a people up until this point, and as we've been mentioning throughout this series, they've been nomads. They've been people without a permanent home. They have this vague name of Abraham they are related to and they cling to, and he owns a burial plot in the place that they are going to, in the place that the God is preparing for them. Uh, Abraham is somehow present there, but this God who has been protecting them through the wilderness, he seems to live on this mountain. And the reality is, this theological question is not just one where the ancient Israelite wrestles with it, but we as Christians wrestle with this. Yes, yes, we know the God of Sinai. We know the God of Calvary. But is that God of Sinai, is that God of Calvary, does He really care to be with the people of Waxhaw today? I mean, we're pretty insignificant people. We, we don't matter in the grand scheme of things. It, you know, the, the world would not mourn if Waxhaw was blotted off the map. And yet, here we worship this God who uses the small things of the world, the foolish things of this world, the Waxhaws of this world, to shame the wise. <coughs> to shame the wise. And so, while there are times in life we fall into the trap of God's not here or God's not at work or God's not able to be worshipped easily in a place like this, or this can't be the path that God wants us to take, there's something that we need to recognize. And the recon what we need to recognize is that we have a God who is present with us. And so we begin to kind of explore this reality by looking at verse 12 of chapter 24 of understanding this God who goes with us. God mentions the tablets that he plans to write, and he plans to give this instruction to Moses and the people to take with them. Now Moses has already written down the law of God. And so even in this moment, it would have seemed a little bit like a parting gift. Uh, and this word for instruction here in this verse is actually where we get the idea of the very word of doctrine itself. You know, a lot of people hate the ideas of doctrinal teaching of the Scripture because doctrine divides. Doctrine draws lines. Doctrine draws barriers. And regardless of any church you find yourself in, that doctrine is going to cause issues. For instance, in the Roman Catholic Church, as the Pope continues to define doctrines 
of and kind of reconsider doctrines of marriage and gender questions and these sorts of things, for some individuals, that's going to divide them right out of the Roman Catholic Church. But others are going to say, oh, great. I love that doctrine. I've been hearing that in the world, and, 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 and Rome's becoming more relevant to the world. So I want to go to a place like that. I want to worship in a church like that. Good job. Likewise, a, a church that's trying to stay faithful to the doctrine that God hands down is going to, at times, experience problems. We've experienced, every church I've ever served at has experienced people leaving over doctrine that they get upset about, that doesn't line up with what they want to be true. It's not that usually these things have these great um, under, biblical understandings, but it's just a doctrine that's frustrating. Doctrine divides. And yet, here is the Lord our God saying, Moses, before you go, I want you to have a word of doctrine written in my hand. God is saying in one sense, Moses, come up the mountain so that you can get tablets with my law, with my commandments, so you might have a doctrine as you head to the place that I am preparing for you. Even that word Torah that is often seen as like kind of woodenly the word law, it's sort of like the Hawaiian word for aloha. In that if you've ever been to Hawaii or have ever met somebody from there, you can use aloha for like seven different things. One sense, Torah is um, a casting in a direction. And so here God is giving them a doctrine that will cast them in a direction as they walk towards the promised land. And this law is more than just static, unfeeling words and legal hoops, but it's the kind of teaching that does give directions. In one sense, it is a GPS. It is a roadmap. And so here, it's a little bit like saying, Moses, here's the roadmap before you go. And so Moses rises and his assistant Joshua, they start to go further up the mountain together to receive this doctrine that God wants them to have and, uh, before they go to the place that he is preparing for them. And as Moses sets out to God, Joshua is coming along, and Joshua is not going to be able to go the entire way, but Joshua can go far enough that he's basically not going to see the golden calf happening downstairs, but not far enough to see everything that Moses experiences. And as Moses and Joshua leave the setting of the other 72 elders, Moses sets out two elders to govern in his place when he is gone. Aaron, his brother, and her. And how, how do those two elders need to lead the camp? Well, we already know from the passage, from the previous passage, They've been given the writings of Moses. They've been given the law. And in one sense, this served as an early constitution, an early foundational text, and so they need to govern from the law. And yet, as we'll check in soon, will they govern from the law? Will these elders have the courage to do it? No, they won't, because as soon as the camp starts grumbling, as soon as the camp wants something else, they equivocate, they, they basically placate, 
and they give up the doctrine in order to please the masses. Here we see even in our own country, we have a doctrine. We have statutes in the Constitution. And yet, if our political leaders do not want to enforce the laws of our country or apply the laws in a fair and just way, what happens to the laws? They're an absolute mess. You know, we, don't, we have a president who doesn't want to enforce laws because his constituents would get upset. And he's busy creating new constituents for himself. And so there's murmuring all through the land. And this is the same. There's the same parallel, a similar parallel in the church itself, even to a greater extent. But this is the doctrine. This is the roadmap by which we live by. This is what we're guided by in the road that in the path we must follow as we go to the place that he has prepared for us. And so Moses goes up the mountain and a cloud covers the mountain. And between verses 15 to 18 in chapter uh, 24, we have a lot of material that will be drawn on later from the New Testament. I'm just going to touch on some of it at this moment. First, we have a glory cloud cover the mountain. And the cloud lets us know that God is there. But for six days, Moses stands apart. He does not enter in. And this is one of those moments where there's no clear explanation here. It's one of those moments where it's every theologian has to come to it in one sense with a little bit of speculation. But let me give you a few things to consider right now. I'm going to save one for the very end of the sermon for us to consider. Why six days and then seven entering into the special presence? Well, first I reset with what I kind of was referencing at the beginning of the sermon. This is the first time, and I believe we see it in verse 16, this is the first time that we have God since really Adam and Eve setting up to dwell with His people again. This is a, a resetting in one sense of a new creation. And so the seven days in one sense, the sixth and then a unique seventh of rest follows that pattern. But also, I believe it just follows the general pattern of the faithful life. Here we are on the Lord's Day. Here we are setting aside uniquely one day out of seven, which we are called to do. Actually, in this moment, in the presence of God, from chapters 23 to, I believe, is it 31? Moses is going to be called out to the Lord, not just once, starting in verse 1 of the next chapter, but he's going to be called on out to the Lord seven times, the seventh of which deals with the Sabbath. There is a, a pattern here of even the weekly life of the believer, I believe, being referenced. And so that's just some of this reality, some of the reality of of God is uniquely entering into the presence of His people. Once again, this is almost a new Eden kind of moment, uh, a new uh, creation kind of moment. A new Genesis is happening. God is settling in. 
for a bare minimum of at least 2,500 years of not having a presence like this, and yet it also follows the pattern to our own life. But there's another thing we need to take into account, and it's this. This word of dwelt is a word that the Gospel of John in chapter 1 picks up on. You know that Gospel of John that once again resets Genesis? This is what John writes in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, His glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And one of the things that John was saying in that Gospel in the ears of a Jewish reader was, Jewish reader, do you remember when Moses spent time with God on Sinai? How God dwelt with Moses? He did that again. And yet this time, He came in flesh. He came incarnate. Because He would be the new Adam of creation. He came to save us from that original Adam. And so all of these threads are in one sense working together. And no sooner does Moses enter than God makes clear to Moses, Moses, those people I said I would prepare a place for in the promised land to come, I want them to prepare a place for me to be with them. He wants the one who goes before us to prepare a place for us wants his people, his congregation, to prepare a place for him. A place to build where in our congregation, this congregation, he could call home. So he could live in their midst. And there's something that we need to notice about what God asked Moses here. God could have asked the priests to do it. He could have just asked the elders to do it. He doesn't. He asks the people to build a tabernacle. Or another way to say this word, he asks the people to build a sanctuary. The people of Israel are to build this sanctuary. Because while priests or in the New Testament pastors might serve in the New Testament in the sanctuary, they do not build it. A congregation is actually to build the sanctuary. All of them are to find ways to contribute. Just as, for instance, a pilot does not build a commercial aircraft. He flies the commercial aircraft. But there's someone else who is to build the commercial aircraft. Though if you've been following air travel lately, maybe it would be better if the pilots built aircraft because they keep finding planes without things on them. I am so happy to have an RV. All right. Um, the, the sanctuary is not built by the people of the pastorate. But the sanctuary is built by the people. I have people all the time who want to come up and, and give credit. Don't give me any credit. The people build the sanctuary. The people build a place of worship. And here comes the danger in worshiping in a sanctuary like ours, in a property like ours. We build out this place for God. We worship uniquely as we build out this place for God. We work, worship uniquely in an older church than most other churches really in the entire world. Churches do not usually stand for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. For instance, there are zero churches 
that are still standing that can be credibly dated from back to the time of the apostles. Because churches crumble, congregations crumble, congregations forsake doctrine, congregations move on, uh, there are waves that wash over them in one sense, tides change, seasons change, and yet here is this congregation and they are asked to create a sanctuary that is pleasing to God. And to be pleasing to God, it needs contributions. And notice how God speaks about this contribution. First, what kinds of offerings does He want? He wants offerings. He wants, for instance, the offerings that you give in service to the sanctuary to be given out of, not of a sense of obligation, not out of a sense of, oh, I reached a percentage, but offerings made from a moved heart. We are members of a Reformed congregation that first acknowledged uh, this church was first acknowledged as a church plant in 1730. We have been on this property since 1732. And we have inherited many things that have been built previously. And yet, with a place like this, while we, stand, we, we reside on a foundation that dates back in just this very church to 1744, and there has already been a lot of giving done to the sanctuary, There is a reality here in that God's desire is for us to continue to give to this place uh, in a heart that loves Him. In a heart that desires to have this place be a place where this, the broader congregation, this, the broader community can meet with God, can, can have communion with God uniquely in His presence. And so, while we can go downstairs in the basement and see the axe marks from, from 1744 or go into the Gemeine House and see axe marks from uh, 1732, there is an opportunity in every giving from the heart that we are connected to the God who sees outside of time and we are uniquely contributing to the sanctuary, to the place that we meet God. And yes, there is, we do worship a God who came in humility in the manger, but when he meets his congregation in this moment, notice he wants their very best. He wants the very best from those who have a heart to give. And so what's the very best for these Israelites? It means in one sense, they would have to dig in, and, and while the passage doesn't explicitly say it, almost every commentator agrees, they have to dig into those items that they received. I believe it was back in chapter 13, as they plundered Egypt, and the people of Egypt were just giving them their goods, and they take from Egypt, and now these things that they've received from Egypt, they now invest to help build a sanctuary, to build an outpost in which they can meet God, commune with God, where God can dwell with them, and they uniquely as a congregation can be blessed with God's presence in their midst. And so the materials were the finest and rarest available to this congregation. They were things like gold, silver, bronze, fine fabrics, even ram skins and goat skins 
you know, how would you like goat skin padding on the pews? I don't know about that. Acadia woods, oils for lamps, spices, incense, onyx stones, and other stones. There was an ephod. There was even a breastplate. And all these things were to come from the congregation, nothing short of the finest and best they had. Are you giving to the building of His sanctuary? If you are, why are you giving to the building of His sanctuary? Is it out of duty or obligation? Or are you moved by God from the heart? Is that why you give? When was the last time you gave from your heart the best you had? Often tithes are talked about in churches and it's an uncomfortable thing because people immediately run to the percentages and they don't really want to speak percentages. But you know what the Lord told Moses He wants from His congregation? He wants a beautiful sanctuary, a beautiful place where we can meet Him. And it's more than just a specific percentage. He wants us to just give with a heart that loves Him. And there would have been places and that the money would have gone to and the gold and the donations would have gone to that the people would have never seen. That the broader people, only the high priest might have seen it, or the Levites, not the commoner, and yet he still wanted them to give. And what was God's ultimate purpose behind that? Was it so that they go, wow, what an altar! Wow, what an outfit for the, for the uh, pastor! You know, oh, that is so wonderful! Look at all those windows. No. But he wanted the place to reflect the fact that here was this God that saved people from Egypt, saved people from the slavery of sin. And now they have been called out of Egypt. They've been called out of that bondage. And they have a place now where they can go and meet with God as a congregation as a community, and he wants them to invest in that place in order that that place might be a blessing and show both their love for him, a place that they have prepared in one sense from him, following his instructions, but also a place where we find rest. And of these people who were called to give from the heart, God didn't stop His request just with what they gave. Just with the, the, the fine adornments that they gave blessed the sanctuary with. No, these people that had a heart for giving were also called to work on it. They were also called to work for the same, uh, for the sanctuary. They would have to give up their time. And I can hear people in the pew saying things like, I'm not a carpenter. I'm not an electrician. I'm not a contractor. I don't have skills to build beautiful things like that. Or I don't have the skills to build that glorious truck camper that was on the back of the pastor's truck. No, you don't. But there are more simple things to help with. You know, our greeters downstairs this morning, I know who they were. I'm not going to call you out. 
They helped build out this sanctuary in the Lord's day. Even the ushers upstairs. The, the, the tabernacle of the Lord would have ushers. It would have greeters. It would have people that, that watched and minded these things as people entered in. Have you done that? You know, I think of J.D. and the, the, the ringing of the bell. Others came. I think of Elaine and Eleanor and the opportunity for others to come alongside, especially as we have more communion services, and say, hey, I'd like to help set up communion. Or downstairs with the fellowship hour as we are people to not forsake the assembling together, but to seek out opportunities for fellowship. Those who are going to go in the back later and start doing dishes and start cleaning up. These are things and roles people serve to help build out the sanctuary. To make this a beautiful place in order to meet God at. And so, not only is this a question of our giving of uh, the treasures we've received and plundered in one sense from the Egypt of our world, but here is a question of what are we doing with our time? What are we investing in and why are we investing in it? Why do we care about these things? Why are these things important for us? Is it because of something in our heart? Or is it for some other reason? And so there is a great many ways to serve God in His sanctuary. And the thing was, and it's clear in the Hebrew here, and even the English translation does a good job explaining this, The tabernacle wasn't the only place you meet God, but it was the place set aside for God so that there's this hint in this clear illustration that God wants to move throughout this community. This community that is living faithfully in doctrine. This community that is giving from the heart. This community that desires to serve Him. Just because for His name's sake. The heart that wants to sacrifice towards the meeting place with God is a heart where God will meet them throughout the week is the idea being conveyed in the Hebrew. And this just isn't an Old Testament thing where the dilemma of the God who needed to get off the mountain and come with Him into the promised land. But as we see... God understands this dilemma and He desires to move with Him. He desires to be with His place wherever, His people wherever they be. This is why, for instance, after the first temple is destroyed and the people are scattered and we read uh, passages of Scripture like Esther and Daniel and these sorts of passages, we should just be amazed. The Jews would have been amazed. Even though we're not in the Holy Land, God is with us. Yes! God is with you because He dwells wants to dwell with you wherever you are. And this goes back to the very beginning. This goes back to the dilemma of the woman at the well because they would have approached God in this moment thinking He was the God of the fixed location. He's the God that we finally have figured it out. We find Him on Sinai. But as we already read from John chapter 1, verse 14, He makes clear that He wanted to be the tabernacle. He wanted to come in the flesh. That He is the Holy of Holies. And there's one unique place in Scripture 
where we have a parallel of the passages and the verses we've been in so far today. And it's in the transfiguration. We're going to read from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 9, before we close. But it points out that Jesus was with James, Peter, and John. Does anyone want to guess how many days Mark's Gospel points out that these three waited with Jesus before they go up the mountain of transfiguration? Anyone want to take a wild guess? Six days. The seventh day they enter in. Let me read from God's Word. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white. And no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. You know, the ones who had met him on the other mountain. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good we are here. Let us make three tents. Let us make three tabernacles. We could translate it. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For Peter did not know what to say, and they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Receive doctrine from Him. Believe upon His words in one sense. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. You see, what God starts to reveal here in Exodus 24 and 25, He does not fully reveal what this tabernacle was really to point to, what this sanctuary was really set to point to, this outpost that He wanted in the wilderness. But now, when we read the New Testament, when we consider the words of the Gospel of Mark chapter 9, when we consider the, the dilemma of the woman of the well, and then we look at what the opening verses of the Gospel of John state, we realize Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the God who is with us. And the power of His Spirit goes before us. And in one sense, the Great Commission itself is a call to make sanctuary outposts, places where congregations and communities can meet together, hopefully through a heart-given desire to want to both give and sacrifice to and thanksgiving to the, uh, really in thanksgiving to the Lord, but also give uh, of time and talents that we give to this sanctuary in order that we and people of worship, people who are a congregation, who have seen the Lord, who has gone up the mountain in order to secure our salvation from sin and all that is uh, vile in our lives, our, our God who shouldn't have wanted to be with us and yet so loved us that He, 
He wanted to be our friend. And so he laid down his life for us that we can meet with him in outposts like this one. An outpost where we're called to serve, where we're called to give, where we're called to proclaim the truth of his word, his doctrine. This is the idea of the faithful life. You know, sometimes we look too much at the heaven to come and we forget that Christ wants us building things now in the present. In one sense, the building up of sanctuaries, the building up of churches all throughout the world is a little bit like when I take my family to the beach and I see them build a sandcastle. Will the sandcastle stand forever? No, it's not going to stand forever. The tides will change. Churches, uh, one day Jesus will make the whole world new again. It will not stand forever. And yet, the God who goes before us, the God who goes before us in order to prepare a place for us, wants us to be a people building, to be a people uh, creating, sacrificing, giving from the heart in the time that we have because we love the God who has saved us from our sin, who has saved us from the slavery of sin. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, continue to renew a right spirit in us, Lord. Purify our heart. Cleanse us from within. Give us the ability to be more faithful in our walking with you. To travel the direction you want us to go. To give out of this great love for you. Help us to not forsake what you have taught us to do. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.